0: Hey Pioneers, welcome to episode number 380. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about consistent bread baking, aka how to get good bread every single time, as well as the science behind land sabbaths. Now you might be thinking, hmm, I'm intrigued by both of these topics but I'm interested how they came to be together in one episode. And that is because today you are getting to listen into one of the live coaching calls that I am doing with Brittany, who is a member of the Pioneering Today Academy. And you are going to really enjoy this episode, I think, because there is a lot of good food for thought, as well as some very interesting things, well, Around baking good bread, of course. But if you're like, okay, I have conquered bread baking, I think you're really going to enjoy when we talk and get to the section where we're talking about the science behind land Sabbaths. Especially if you're like, hmm, what is a land Sabbath? I'm intrigued by what that actually is, or you've heard about it but you've never actually heard the science behind it. Maybe you've only heard it from a biblical context. We're going to dive into all of that today, and this is a super fun episode. Now, if you want to check out the blog post where we'll be linking to some of the resources and things that we're talking about in this episode, of course, you can do that by going to com forward slash 380. That's just the numerical 380 because this is episode number 380. Okay. Let's dive in to our live coaching session with Brittany. Well, Brittany, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hi. Hello. I'm happy to have you on today and I'm actually excited. Well, I'm always excited, but (laughs) some of the topics that you brought up to talk today and go through have been especially the second one has been one that I was also very curious about um and so the research on that was really intriguing and I find it very fascinating so I'm excited to talk about that one but I have here that one of the things that is your major goal and you can let me know if this is still true is to get real bread that is not bricks or crumbs
1: yeah yeah Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's my
0: specialty. That's your specialty. Well, I know you're not alone in that. So first off, kind of walk me through what type of bread you're you're making right now, like sourdough, fresh ground, you know, all the, that type of thing. And then the issues, and then we'll try to work through those.
1: Right now I'm using the whole wheat store-bought flour and okay. that bread is coming out perfect like 99% of the time. But I wanted to start using freshly ground um, hard white wheat. Uh huh. That's where my problems are coming from. So I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I know it takes a little bit longer for it to absorb some of the liquid, but it's not, I have yet to come out with a single loaf of bread that actually is edible.
0: Okay. Well, you're not alone in that because moving to fresh ground flour, even if you're using store-bought whole wheat, like you have, one, I want anybody listening to this, because if they have tried it or they're looking to move into using fresh ground flour, there is definitely a learning curve and it's not just subbing in the different flour types. So you're not alone in it and it can be very frustrating, but first off, so when you're using the fresh ground and kudos that you're using the hard white wheat, because for bread, that is exactly what you do want to be using because of the gluten contents in the hard white wheat, as well as the protein. So that part you have right so that's really good cuz some some people will try to use the soft uh, not realizing that that is suited for your pastry type items and is not going to work as well for bread so you've got that part right so when you're using that is it uh too dense um what exact how is it not really edible what's the end result that you're getting
1: um typically it has a giant crater in the inside and around that little crater it's really doughy and then okay. the outside is like hard as a rock and then sometimes i'll have it to where i'll have a tiny little hole in the center but as soon as i cut it it just crumbles into pieces
0: okay and then it's too it's too dry okay all
1: right uh,
0: okay well <laughs> You'll have, you can have a lot of breadcrumbs, but that's not your goal when you want nice sliceable bread. I know. Um, okay. So walk me through when you're, when you're making the dough, kind of walk me through how you're, how you're creating the bread dough. Walk me through kind of your process there.
1: Um, after I grind the flour down, I measure it because I'm usually using a recipe that makes two loaves. So I'll start off with about seven or eight cups of flour and I'll add one cup at a time when I'm mixing it together and I'll keep an eye on the consistency. So if it starts to stick together, but it's not, um, when I pinch it with my fingers, I'll start doing that. But it seems like it's still a little bit wet. So I'll just add maybe half a cup at that point and just continue spinning. And then once it starts to hold together, I'll take it out of my KitchenAid mixer and then I'll mold it by hand. And just add a little bit of flour as I need to now that's where I tend to run into problems is sometimes I add too much flour and then other times I don't add enough flour and then it it rises really good, but I don't get that window pane test exactly how I like it mm-hmm. and that's where I'm starting to notice some of my problems are coming from
0: okay, so with the fresh ground flour, you absolutely do have to go buy feel what you're trying to do. And I know that sometimes that gets really frustrating because you're like, well, if I knew what it felt like to be correct, then obviously that's what I would do it too. So sometimes that answer, I know just makes you like want to grit your teeth. and be like, that's not helpful. So one of the things with the fresh ground flour, this is where I want to say doing that. These two things made the biggest difference for me and getting loaves that actually turned out consistently and were not bricks and weren't too dry. And that was getting the hydration level right, which is harder with fresh ground flour. So for me, I will make it on. So it's really, it's really tacky upon mixing. So it still feels really um, it, a little bit of the dough will actually stick to your fingers, but so it's very wet and then only mix those ingredients together for about four minutes, just enough that they're combined and you can feel that it's kind of sticky and tacky. Mm-hmm. And then let that sit usually for about four minutes. I'll let that just kind of sit for a little bit. And then I'll go back and knead that to like, just on the, with the KitchenAid, the kneading uh, hook for four minutes, another four minutes. So it's only really like eight minutes total. Okay. And then let it sit for 15 to 20 minutes And then come back and actually check if it feels still sticky because it takes about 15 to 20 minutes for the fresh ground flour to absorb the moisture. Cause you're correct. Store-bought flour, the way that it's had the brand removed and and just the process that that goes through, even when it's whole wheat. It doesn't absorb moisture the same way as your fresh ground flour does. So I found by kind of breaking up when I'm kneading the dough with that four minute window, which doesn't seem like very much, but that kind of, for me has just been the ticket. And then that 20 minutes afterwards that then, and then that's at the stage after you've done that 20 minute sit time where you're letting it absorb the liquid and that it is still doing some development of the gluten. So then, that's at the point where I would check for your window pane, and not directly after kneading, because it it's it's a little bit even though you're not doing sourdough necessarily, it's a little bit more like doing the fold method, even though we are doing some kneading, but kind of waiting for that um, that wait period for those gluten strands to develop, so that you get window pane instead of trying to do it right at the kneading time. Um, I found that that allows it to develop while it's absorbing the moisture. And then I don't get too much flour in, um, and the hydration level tends to stay a lot more consistent.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. It's really, really helpful. And it's really fascinating because w- when I first started, um, you were so used to the way that store-bought flour, be it whole wheat or all-purpose or bread flour, or whatever, the way that it works and you are like, this is going to be so sticky. Like, there's no way I can form a loaf. Like, this is going to be tacky. It's going to stick to everything. And then you come back after that 20 minutes and you're like, oh, it's it's totally workable now. It's so weird because it's so different than what we're used to mm-hmm. when working with the other flour. But every single time it has. And if and if there's one time, you know, that that you're still kind of playing with those ratios and you come back after that 20 minutes and you're like, oh, it's still a little bit too shaggy or a little bit too wet at that time, it's okay to incorporate a little bit more flour in there. I wouldn't knead it in a ton. Like I wouldn't do a whole other, like four to eight minute kneading session, just enough that you can actually get that extra flour incorporated into it. Um, and then, you know, let it just do it's, it's rise time, um, et cetera. And I still on the hydration level, after we've done that 20 minute rest, when you come back to it, I still have found that I need it to be a little bit stickier than you would with like an all purpose or a bread flour. I found anytime with the whole wheat that I still need it to be a little bit wetter. Um, but, but you should still be able to form it and not have it like, you know, sticking to your finger, like a, like a batter type thing, but just a little bit tacky, not like I don't know if you ever heard this, this was always given to me in this example, when I was working with like all purpose flour, bread flour, white flour, um, that it should feel when it's needed correctly, like smooth, like a baby's butt.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you don't actually want that with fresh ground flour. If you've gotten it to feel that smooth, then it's, you're likely going to have a dense end product. Um, yeah. so we do want to keep it a little bit more on the moist side, Um, and not have it be that that smooth. You're just not going to if you get to that texture with fresh ground flour, it's likely going to be a very dense, hard bread on the coming out of the oven side.
1: That makes a lot of sense because that's what I usually get with the store-bought flour is that real nice smooth texture and it comes out perfect, but with this, it comes out harder than a rock and it just crumbles. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. I know it's like there's completely different rules for fresh ground flour. Um, and baking in comparison to store-bought flour, it's like you have to throw probably about half of what you're used to out the window in order to get that good end product. So I think from what you've described, that just by doing those steps, that you're, it's going to make a world of difference. And then for the hole in the center, um, it that may be that it needs a little, that it might, it could be underproofed. So, cool. maybe, so I would first just make the changes like we just talked about, and then see see what happens like if you still get the the tunneling that goes kind of all the way, you know through there, um then I would look at proofing it a little bit longer so that a first an initial first rise, letting that go like maybe even just like an extra ten minutes, not a huge amount of time, um because I have fresh ground flour. I have found does typically tend to go through yeast a little bit faster. I feel like because the fresh ground flour has all of the components and the nutrients in it, that the yeast tends to feed on it faster, both in sourdough and even with store-bought yeast. So just extend it like five or 10 times, ten not 10 times, good night, minutes, <laughs> five or 10 minutes longer. Um, and see if that makes a little bit of a difference. And then the other uh, question I had for the hole in the middle is, I'm assuming these are sandwich loaves. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So when you are forming your sandwich dough into the loaf for that second rise, are you rolling it or how are you actually shaping that loaf?
1: Um, I will, yeah, I will eventually roll it and kind of puff it up a little bit and then I drop it a couple of times to help get some of the air pockets out. But yeah, I usually just roll it and try to shape it into a loaf.
0: Okay. Great. Cause not everybody, when I first started making bread and sandwich loaves, I didn't know that you rolled it, that you can, you know, that it's not like a cinnamon roll, but kind of like you roll it like that. And I didn't know that I just kind of would put it in a ball and try to just like, like play-doh and just kind of try to make it, force it into the shape of whatever my, my little loaf pan was. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm like, we are going to make this work. Um, and then when I discovered rolling, I'm like, oh my goodness, like the texture of the bread inside, just all of the things like it got a lot better. But, um, if you're not rolling it tight, especially on the, you know, the first rolls and you have tunneling sometimes that too, but it sounds like that you're already rolling it. So that's great. I I'm pretty sure it's a hydration issue and then maybe a little bit of underproofing. So those are the two, I would tr- test those two things first and make those adjustments, Um, and I think that that will get you where you, where you need to go. And also, you know, keeping that dough, um, a little bit on the wetter side and that 20 minute wait time will really give you a good idea of actually what your moisture content is. I think that that should eliminate to the the crumble issue that you're talking about when you're slicing it, then it just crumbles into nothing.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I'm running out of room for breadcrumbs. So yeah
0: one can only use so many breadcrumbs, there's only so many toppings that you could do or meatballs and meatloafs, uh, that type of thing. So yep. we'll get you some sliceable bread there.
1: Awesome. I like the sound of that.
0: <laughs> Good deal. Okay. And then this was the topic that I found intriguing. So I'm really glad that you did too. And that was on, you had to- said that you'd been hearing about farmers that were letting their land rest in the seventh year okay um so i'm curious where where did you come across or where did you hear about this um first
1: honestly i cannot remember i was just bored one day and started watching youtube videos on farming and overheard a farmer say oh my seventh year is this year so we're resting on the land i was like oh i recognize that (laughs) phrase." so i understand the biblical standpoint from it when you read about in the old testament but besides that, that as far as my knowledge goes with that. So I'm like, well, what is the research on this? What do we know? I'm really curious because this is actually my sixth year on this property. So I'm, I'm actually planning to do this for my garden next year to see what happens.
0: Okay. Well, I love that you're going to test it out and yeah, you're right. It's, um, it, a seven year land rest or, you know, a seven year sabbatical or letting the land lay fallow for the seventh year. Those are just kind of some different terms that are usually used to kind of explain this, this process. And it definitely does have its foundation biblically. Um, you know, for example, uh, Exodus 23, first ten and that's for six years you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. And during the seventh year you let the land lie unplowed and unused. The poor among your people may glean from that. so whatever just happens to come up that you did not actually you know plant um, for food, the wild animals may eat what is left and then it also says to do the same with your vineyard and your olive groves. Um, which was really is really interesting. And then the other portion that we see that's come up again in the Old Testament is Leviticus. So Leviticus 25 through six. And this is the part that's, that's fascinating because it says during the year of rest, the land will give food for you, for your men and women's servants, the man you pay to work for you, the stranger who lives with you, even your cattle and the animals in your land will have food to eat. So it's, it's this promise that if you follow this. And of course we're we're talking about this in the, in the biblical context or, or from a Christian whatnot, that you will be provided for even more abundantly by obeying this, even though you're not actually planting and growing crops in that seventh year, which kind of seems like an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, like you're like this, you know, to our mind, like common sense wise, you're like, well, this, this doesn't really sound like it makes that much sense, but it's been really fascinating. Um, letting the land go fallow and using that time to let the land rest and regenerate. So uh, for those who are interested in regenerative agriculture or sustainable land management practices, which I feel like is definitely, um, I almost hate to use the word trending, but I feel like a lot of more people are becoming more interested in that right now and looking at what does regenerative agriculture actually mean? Like, what does that do? We're trying to support farmers that are putting this into practice it and then for homesteaders a lot of us are trying to just implement this on a very small scale just within our own homesteads um, but really sustainable land management practices as we look throughout all of uh, kind of like human history it's been used for for thousands of years even though it has its foundation in ancient biblical rule rules. So following the soil or letting it rest can help increase nutrient deposits like potassium and phosphorus. So there's a lot of our, you know, macro and micronutrients and some of these different minerals and whatnot that aren't always available at the top of the soil. So you can have sometimes soil, especially like in a garden setting or even in your, your fields, And some of these minerals and different things are in the soil, but they're not at the top root level. And so it takes them a while to work their way up from the deeper part of the soil to be up at the top of the soil and then to actually be available in the soil for the plant to uptake it. And sometimes this is a time development um, as well. Like there can be calcium even in the upper level of the soil, so to speak, or as uh, phosphorus, potassium, et cetera. Um, but it can actually take a year or two before it is fully available in a form in the soil that plants can, can draw it. And so that's kind of one of the reasons when we're using companion planting, which I'll make sure in this episode, we'll link to some of the articles and different things on companion planting, where we go into this. But that's one of the reasons that you actually don't plant root crops in an area until the third planting, because they need the phosphorus and the potassium. And oftentimes those levels, even when they've been added to the soil, they're not actually available to the plants um, for a couple of seasons later. So really interesting how companion planting uses some of the same principles, but you can also accomplish that, um, with letting your soil lie fallow. So there's, there's that part. Um, some of the other things is it raises your carbon level. It can raise your nitrogen and organic matter levels. It can improve your moisture holding capacity and increase the beneficial micro micro organisms in the soil. Another benefit of letting a section of ground lay fallow like that for a whole year is it can reduce soil compaction. And that's because we're not typically, if we're not gardening in there, we're not harvesting in there, uh, you know, tilling up the sand, uh, soil cultivating, etc. you're decreasing the amount of actual compaction on the soil due to walking or farming equipment and, and all of that. So you're actually also helping if you deal with soil compaction, if you have really clay soil or soil that's getting compacted, um, it can help with that as well. What's really interesting is there's actually been a lot of studies that have shown the yield from growing areas that have had a year of rest versus just you know continually planting that soil and not ever taking time off. And one of the studies was done in Australia and it was done on wheat and it showed that wheat grown in a following rotation, yielded overall a much higher yield or harvest of the wheat. So they looked at a 20-year period and the crop actually yielded a largely higher profit than the fields that they planted every single year. So over 20 years, letting that every seventh year for the fields to lie fallow compared to just planting 20 years straight through, even though they actually had two it'd be two year, right? Let me do, yeah, 20, yeah, two years where there was no crop grown. The plot that they did that with had a much larger yield overall than the 20 year where they did it, even though, and this is the part I found really interesting, even though they were adding proper fertilizers and amendments and rotated with nitrogen fixing crops, but if they didn't take that year off, Even with adding in all of those things, which is what a lot of us do in a home backyard garden, homesteading type environment. You know, we're adding our chicken manure to get in or we're doing crop rotation and doing nitrogen fixing crops and adding, you know, amendments and different things like that. But it still didn't produce the high crop harvest that taking those years of fallow did. I found that really fascinating
1: that is really cool. That's what I was wondering what was going to happen with this. I was like, you know what? I want to see what happens on my land. I want to really, I'm, I'm planning to do a soil test in the fall before I put it to rest and then do it again the following year. When I, after the seventh year, or once the eighth year comes, I'll do another test to see what the science is telling me because it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I'm really excited for you to do it. I find it really interesting too. Um, One of the things is just letting it like, and this depends on your space too. Like, obviously if you are very limited on the space that you can grow in, the only option that you would have to do this would be to completely not plant anything, you know, on your property or, you know, for a year and, and just see what happens. But there's also where people will just choose a section. So it's almost like you're rotating through your growing space and your, your garden beds. And so sometimes people will take like a field and they'll split it in two halves and they'll, you know, plant half the field for six years so that they always have one half of the field that they are growing from, but working that into a rotation. And sometimes people even do that within garden beds. Like they'll choose one area of the garden and that will be the section that lies fallow. And then the following year, it would flip to the other section. Um, and, and that, that type of way. So there's multiple ways that I think you could run and that you could test this depending upon your, you know, space that you have available. Um, and also if you're doing it on a, from a biblical standpoint or not. And the reason I say that, because, um, some people feel that the purpose of it is just not, is not just for the soil health, um, but it's also, you know, a faith walk. And so if they don't plant, anything at all than really relying on faith and and God's promise that that six year that that bounty will be there to take them through the seventh year and it not only provides a, a sabbath so to speak for the soil for that seventh year but also for the the farmer and doing the labor in that seven year and it's it's a, it's a year of rest for them too so i just say that cuz i know we you know different uh, different walks of faith and different people come at a soil rest year from different aspects But regardless which way you come at it, I think it's really impressive uh, to look at and see the ways that it's showing that it definitely improves soil fertility as well as harvest yield.
1: Yeah, that sounds really interesting because I was reading the scriptures on it and it's in a very important aspect of our family here. So I was like, you know what? If the Bible says we need to do it, we're going to do it. Uh, But now I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really nice science experiment. Yeah, question on that though is like we do have a small vegetable garden so I'm going to let the whole thing rest for next year but in the front yard we have what I call affectionately call my my berry patch but it's it's a redneck version of a berry patch right if I can find one little patch of sunshine I'm going to put something there to see if it survives so we'll see if that berry patch actually made it from last year or not um if it did two years from now, no, I'm sorry, three years from now will be our seventh year. How would I do that with a perennial? Like right now I have elderberry, blueberries, and grapes in there. So how would I do that with a perennial?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because you're you're not going to rip them out. And I don't think that that by reading the scriptures, like with your, you know, your vineyards and everything, that's not what, um, That's not what I, I I read from the scriptures, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So you, it, it's like, you just would not be harvesting the crop. And so I actually did not research that would be really interested to know if you don't harvest the fruit, does that actually signal something to the plant Um, does it feed back extra to the roots? And of course, wild animals, um, are going to, you know, you're going to have the birds come in and eat some of those berries, regardless if you harvest them or not, but it'll be really interesting. I will have to look up and see if I can find some research on that. Um, if there's something that actually is triggered within the plant that would increase, you know, production the following year, if you didn't actually harvest any of the fruit from it, that part, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I did see a little bit online when I looked at it, I just heard, you know, some of the things I was picking up were um, once the plant produces it, it stops producing once it's, I don't want to say quote unquote full with the berries, it's not being harvested. So it's not going to continue to bring more like a blueberry, for example, it's mm-hmm. not going to continue to more blueberries. And eventually it will drop those berries whatever's left over and you'll get that natural compost that recycles under the soil. But that's as far as I got with that one because there wasn't a whole lot of research. So I was like, you know what, that's another thing I'm going to do in just a couple of years once I reach my 7 i I'm going to test the soil before and after and see what happens and monitor the health of the bushes and see if I find anything after the seventh. Yeah, I will be
0: very curious to see what what your soil tests show and even what you just, you know, what you see as far as production the following year from the berries. Because the blueberries, and maybe it's very berry and fruit specific, because with blueberries, for example, the fruit blossoms are all formed in in the winter, early spring. Mm-hmm. And at least with the plants that I have. That that's all you get for the year. So they, you know, those blossoms that get pollinated, etc., form the blueberry, and then you know those ripen and whatnot. But then I don't get like even if I were to stay on top of all of the picking, which we usually do because we only have about six blueberry plants, I'm not going to get in that year anyways more blossoms formed because I've removed those berries from it. Whereas like with the raspberries and stuff, and I take it, you know, the the way that that blossom cycle works, I'll still get more, uh, blossoms coming on and, and get some more for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. But anyways, yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I can't wait to see, to see your results, um, over, over time. I f- I'm finding it very fascinating. So yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, it's going be fun. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I just love, I don't know about you, but like, I love part of the, of gardening. Obviously I love to get the food, but I really like the experimental part, like, just like what, with what you're doing, like when you test something and you do this and you just, you see what happens. Uh, I think it's really fun. Like it keeps, it keeps it ex- exciting and like always learning. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a geek, but I really like that aspect.
1: You're my kind of people though. I told a friend of mine, uh, cause I've been trying to grow a in my medicinal garden for like three years. And it's, I'm either providing too much in the soil or not enough, or there's not enough sun. There's always something. Mm-hmm. And of course, last year I'm starting to find mullen cre- uh, creeping up between the cracks of my concrete and they're yeah. coming out beautiful. And I'm like, I told a friend of mine, we have a freeway by my house that's being torn up. I said, I'm going to walk up there or drive up there. I'm going to grab pieces of concrete. I'm going to put them in my car, take them home and throw them in my backyard and wait for the mullen to find that concrete. And I'm <laughs> going to grow mullen. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be fun. We'll see what happens. I like it. Yeah. Mullen is one of those.
0: I'm with you. Like it, it doesn't grow really wild and naturally here as it does on the east side of the mountains from us. And so the east side of the mountains where we live is very dry. We're on the coastal side. And so we're typically really wet. And I think that Mullen prefers, just like you're seeing, it really prefers like the dry hardly any nutrient. Like it seems to thrive in those environments because same as you, like I had bought seed, I'd bought all these little starts. Yep. And then I find I, it must've like just produced enough, a few flowers that there were seeds. Cause it didn't do that well. And then I find it over on the side of our driveway in like the rockiest, most pitiful area. And there's this mullein growing. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, but I'm thrilled, but I'm like, okay, I tried way too hard. Apparently I was, I was just too nice to it. It did not appreciate that environment.
1: <laughs> yeah, That's exactly what a friend of mine told me. She goes, oh, you get, you're feeding it too much. It's too happy. I said, well, it was miserable because it's like some plants or it freaks out if the pH level is off by 0.1%, but it'll find some crack in the concrete and like, yeah, time to party. And it's like, yeah, that's my molin. Yeah.
0: hundred the percent. The mullein for me is is definitely that way as well as plantain. Um, yeah. It just loves the poorest, rockiest graveled areas, uh, which is great because they don't have to cultivate it, but it's very interesting how different, yes, different plant needs and, and how they will thrive when they have the right environments versus- Versus not, um, so yeah, I can't wait to see all that happens, and you'll have to keep us posted on the bread, how mm-hmm. that goes. I can't wait to see your your victory picture when we have the nice, sliceable, fluffy, fluffy <laughs> loaves. I know it's coming. We're gonna get there. Um, well, Brittany, thank you so much for coming on and for being a part of the academy and the membership. Always look forward to seeing your bright, smiling face and your. Uh, Sense of humor in the comment section.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode and learned some fun new things. Now, this is part of the series that we are doing because we are going to be opening the doors to the Pioneering Today Academy in March, specifically March 22nd. And we only open the doors a couple of times a year. So if you are ready to join the membership, you get access to every single one of my courses, including the opportunity to have some of these one-on-one calls and get to know the members that we've been highlighting as well inside the community aspect. You, my friends, want to make sure that you head on over to melissaknorris.com forward slash p pta melissaknorris.com forward slash pta and jump on the wait list you'll get more information and first access to the spots as soon as we open the doors i will be back here with you next week blessings and mason jars for now my friends